HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, We all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. In preparation for today's program, I was rereading sections of Fabio Parasecoli's interesting book called Al Dente, The History of Food in Italy, published in 2014. And actually, Fabio was on my show at that time. So I'll I'll get that episode at some point and put it up for you. Um, But in that book, Fabio reported on an interesting study specifically for this program today. And he, our program today is all about Italian rice. In 2011, according to Fabio in his book, the 150th anniversary of the unification of Italy, the popular Italian food and wine magazine Gambero Rosso conducted a survey of its readers to identify what were, in their opinion, the most important Italian foods. Well, trying to get anybody to agree on that. I would imagine it's pretty difficult, but the online survey indicated that, to no one's great surprise, the top billings went to Parmigiano-Reggiano at 54%, followed closely by extra virgin olive oil and pizza napolitana, each at 43%, and bufala mozzarella. But surprising to many was that rice came in at over 37% and appeared to be more important than bread or spaghetti, 
which is hard to believe. But the list definitely skewed towards the North. It was produced by readers of a high-end food magazine who had online access. Well, surprises aside, it is a fact that Italy is the largest rice production country in Europe, with a cultivation area of well over a half a million acres and over one and a half million tons of total grain production. Most of the Italian production is grown in the area of Vercelli, Alessandria, Pavia, and Novara, between Lombardy and Piedmont. My guest today, Paolo Salvadore di Wiesnoff, knows the business of rice quite well. Paolo is an heir to one of the oldest rice farms in that area, the Principato di Lucedio, owned and operated by his mother, the Contessa Rosetta Clara Cavalli di Olivoli. Well, Paolo, you're going to have to help me out. <laughs> Cavalli di Olivola, Salvadore di Wiesenhoff. Am I saying Wiesenhoff correctly? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. And Paolo joins me today from Vercelli in Italy. Welcome, Paolo, or should I call you Count Paolo? <laughs> Hello, Linda. Paolo, it's perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, Paolo, this, I, I know I butchered your mother's name, but um, can you tell me, uh, give, give everybody, I have done reading from your website and, and from um, a different uh, information that I have on the background of the Principato di Lucedia, but explain for our listeners some of the history of that of that um, farm, or what you call it, the the factory or the the area. Uh, Lucedio is an abbey and has been built uh, in 1123 by Cistercian monks, monks coming from France from Bourgogne, and the Cistercian were an order vocated to agriculture. So Lucedio started at the beginning to be a farm, and it's still until now a farm. It's one mm. of the oldest farm in Italy. Uh, the monks, they were used to build the abbey in an area far from cities, because city uh, means uh, corruption. So they they started cultivated the land around Lucedio. At the beginning, they didn't cultivate the rice. They cultivate other uh, products. And then at the end of the 13th century, beginning of the 14th century, they start the rice cultivation. And we consider that Lucedio is the first place where the rice has been cultivated in Italy. We have a document of uh, one abbot of Lucedio, and he said, uh, in this year, uh, we planted in front uh, of the abbey uh, a certain quantity of rice. So at the beginning, it was cultivated in the cloister. Uh, as a plant, uh, typical plant of the cloister. And then probably they understood that it was uh, easy to cultivate uh, in the fields. And so they start uh, the rice cultivation and they become very, very rich. Uh, at a certain moment, the monks, the monks of Lucedio, they, they had more than 7,000 hectares, not only in Piemont, but also in other areas of Italy and also in Greece, also in an area that now is between uh, Iran and Iraq. So very, very wealthy. Mm. And this was also uh, the cause of the decadence because the big, the, the most important Italian families, they want to have the richness uh, of uh, the Abbey of Lucedio. So at a certain moment, the Pope expropriate the monks. 
uh, he said that the monks they didn't respect the rules, but in reality it was only an excuse to keep all the land. So Lucedio, in uh, 1775, uh, the monks left Lucedio and the Savoia family, the royal family of Piemont at that time, became the owner of Lucedio. When Napoleon arrived in Italy in 1801, he became the owner of Lucedio and then he gave the property to his brother-in-law, the Prince Camillo Borghese. In 1821, Lucetio was bought by a free investor and one was an ancestor of our family. Uh, the free investor, after a few months, they start fighting together and so uh, they divide the property in three blocks and our ancestor ob obtained Lucetio. Then one was again sold and my grandfather bought back Lucetio in 13, 1937. This is the main story, but there are many, many links to the, the Italian and the European story uh, with Lucedio. Um, Free Pope, uh, they spent some time in Lucedio because it was really very, very important in the medieval time. Yeah, well, just reading the background of it, I mean, it, it reads like, you know, opening a, you know, a Renaissance history book and even before Middle Ages to Renaissance. I mean, the family names and the, you know, the, as you just mentioned, Napoleon, Borghese, and then even before the Savoys. And, you know, you know, just amazing that it's been in your family since 18. So it's theoretically, it's been in your family since what, the mid 1800s, right? No, also bef um, before, because my mother is a descendant of the landlords who invited the monks uh, uh, from Bourgogne to Lucedio. So wow. it was in our family, then was out, then rebooked, and then again out, and then my grandfather rebooked it just so, before the Second World War. Needless to say, it's a really old rice farm. <laughs> but, yeah. um, um, my question, and that brings me to my question about the rice. Uh, rice, <clears throat> I'm sure was, well, as, as, well, not I'm sure, but I know I've, I've read rice had been introduced to Italy repeatedly during different periods of time, even back, you know, in the, uh, you know, early, early days uh, before, let's say around the six, eight hundreds, from both the Arabs and Muslims and who traveled there and took over like Sicily and, and worked its way up yes. or by Venetian travelers, whether it, you know, and, and merchants, um, but no written document about where exactly the rice came from now you've had a lot of different varieties of rice over the years so you don't know where do you know where the very first rice that was planted came from whether it was you know arab rice or chinese rice or uh, the rice uh, arrives from uh, uh, asia uh, roman and greek they never cultivate the rice they, mm. they were used to buy the rice from merchants and they didn't use it as a food but it was so expensive that they use it as a uh, or med medicine, or the rich Roman women, they had slaves checking the, the grains of rice and they used the rice as uh, beauty cream. Oh. So the rice arrived from Asia, but probably the Arabs, when they invaded Sicily, they started the rice cultivation, but there is no documents proving this. At that time, Sicily has a lot of water, so it's possible that uh, they had started rice cultivation. Uh -huh. But in uh, we have no we have no documents proving this. Uh -huh. We have documents talking about the rise in northern Italy. Yeah, and it and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know what was going on as far as trade at that time. 
Um, what, well, what makes your region, this whole Vercelli, the Piedmonte and Lombardy region, what makes it such an important rice area, rice producer in Europe? Um, we have a lot of water in uh, in our region, in Piedmont, in Lombardy, because uh, we have the Po Valley, and the Po is the main river in Italy. And so um, rice needs in Europe to be covered, uh, the fields need to be covered by water, not for irrigation, but to protect the rice from the difference in climate from the night to the day. So you need the water, otherwise if you produce, uh, you cultivate the rice without water, you will lose a lot of the production. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a, a system of channels that brings the water from the main river to the fields. And these uh, thousands and thousands of kilometers of channels are maintained by the farmers, the rice farmers. So they do something very important for uh, all the region, because uh, if you have a problem of flood, uh, with uh, these channels, uh, reduce the risk for the population because the water can go everywhere without going uh, against the houses or people. Right. So this is, a, I've seen it referred to as channelization. Yes. Making the ch- channels to control the water. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, what, so the channels then divide the land. Is that what's called the pianetti? The piani sono, uh, the fields are divided. Uh, um, you have to think that in the ancient time, with no machine, everything was done by uh, men with animals. So the fields were very, uh, not very big because mm-hmm. the, the, the horse, they had to uh, relax when he turns and in return in the opposite direction. Now um, we have 500 hectares here in Lucedio and we have only three people working all the year and two person work in six months because everything is done by machine. So now we have, we are in the opposite situation. We need to have very large fields, campi or cam- campetti. It's the Italian translation of fields mm-hmm. and they should be big because the machine, every time when uh, they have to turn, the machine has to turn, we lose time. So you, in the last uh, 50 years, uh, uh, all the rice farmers, they have uh, enlarged the fields uh, because the machines are very, very big. Uh, during that time, um, when even when um, the production was mechanized, there I was reading about um, when you changed types, or your, your farm, many farms, changed the varieties of rice, was due to rice blast? The rice blast... Rice blast? Uh, is a very big problem for the rice producer. In Lucedio, we are very, uh, we don't have a lot of problem because uh, the, our land is very solid and compact. And so this reduces the risk of the blast. Uh, there are three techniques to fight against the, uh, the blast. And excuse me, what, is, it, is the blast a fungus or? Uh, a, it's a or fungus, a yes. Okay. It's a fungus. And um, to, com- to, to fight against this, you, there, there are three strategies. Uh, the first one is the crop rotation. Mm-hmm. So never uh, cultivate the same, uh, never cultivate all, all the year rice in the same fields, but right. you have to change with other. It's something that returns like it was done uh, centuries ago. Mm-hmm. The second strategy is uh, uh, 
correct fertilization. If you add uh, too much fertilizer on the fields, uh, this fungus can uh, arrive. And the, the, the third strategy is the correct uh, flood level of the water. Very important because if the water is uh, lower, uh, again, the fungus can attack the rice. And last but not least, uh, the use of uh, disease-free seeds. Because some farmers, they are used to reuse uh, uh, the rice they have produced in the autumn as a seeds for the next uh, uh, season. But this is very bad because you risk to have uh, uh, the infection in the seeds. Oh, right. That, that for sure. Um, well, you have taken a lot of steps at, um, at your farms to, to really make changes in also the machinery that I was reading. But you, you believe in uh, everything being very clean for both the environment and for the, for the fields. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. It's uh, very important to have uh, uh, in, in the past decades, probably the, uh, the farmers, they've used too many, too much pesticides in the fields. Mm -hmm. Now we are more, uh, the young farmers are more, uh, they are more interested in environmental. And so uh, we receive from the European Union money for the cultivation but we must respect uh, in a very severe way um, the product that we use, the quantity of the pesticides and when we use it. One third of our farm is organic, so we don't use in this part uh, any pesticides. We only uh, we try to, uh, to destroy the plants that they make problem to the rice in a mechanic way or in summer with uh, people, generally Chinese, because uh, no, no Italian want to do this. They have to stay in the fields and they have to cut the herbs that are uh, still uh, surviving. And they, if you didn't do this, uh, you will lose part of the production, part of the rice production. Hmm. And, and then, uh, go ahead. Um, about the environmental sustainability, uh, there are some things that are very important that we do. Uh, rice cultivation with the permanent submersion method. This is very important because uh, one of the main advantage is the uh, almost total containment of the nitrate uh, percolation that is very, very dangerous in, in the Po Valley, in the groundwater. And we use less water that is also very important not to waste the water uh, also because the so our fields uh they have a, a very high percent of clay and so you don't lose uh, the water that uh, this will happen if you have a sandy fields yeah. and this also helps to control the weeds mm -hmm. the second uh, the second things that we do the cover crop uh, we after one harvest in in uh, autumn we plant a cover crop to uh, naturally refertilize the land without any uh, chemical fertilizer. And then the rotation of the crops. Never do uh, more than three years of rice in the same fields. We use soy uh, or corn uh, or something else mm -hmm. to uh, enrich uh, the fields. 
And the fourth uh, strategy is the adoption of uh, precision agriculture to manage fertilizer and phytosanitary treatments. So less product, less product in the fields and in the correct moment. The fifth is the mechanical weed control integrated with the chemical control. The sixth is the use of uh, forecasting models for the prevention and containment of the main phytosanitary issue. And then we keep in the farm 25 hectares of uh, wood. And this is also uh, something that uh, reduce, remove the carbon dioxide emitted during the cultivation process. Right. I was going to ask something about the, the submersion, about um, greenhouse gases. So if you, that, that I, I assume is... Uh, helps avoid the buildup of too many of yes, the greenhouse absolutely. gases. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, we receive, uh, all the rice farmers in Europe receive uh, an, uh, an amount of money from the European government uh, because there are two possibilities of cultivated rice. To, to plant the seeds in the water, so putting the water in uh, mid-April, in a few weeks, or to add the water one month later. So if you do the traditional way planting the seeds in the water, you have, so you have the water for one month, one and a half months more in the fields. This is something that is very good for the environmental. And so we, we are pressed to uh, respect this role. Many farmers, they try to do another technique that is uh, to plant a seed like corn uh, and then to add the water after 40, 45 days. But this is a waste of water because the water that is, uh, the snow that is going from the mountains in the river now, uh, if you don't use it in the fields, will go to the sea and this water uh, will be lost. If you put the water in the fields, uh, you keep the level of the water under the fields higher than with the other technique. Mm. And then when you're, how do you drain the fields when you're ready to harvest? We dry the, the, the we dry the, the fields in mid August because mm -hmm. we start uh, the cultivation uh, the harvest in uh, mid from mid September until the end of October, depending on the weather and also depending on the variety because there are some varieties they have a long life and some short some have shorter lives. Right, right. So then the water just goes back to the sea, right? I mean, whatever. absolutely. Yeah. Um, you wonder how rice ever got grown before all of these innovations were made, but um, it's it's really a very it seems a very time consuming project. But now you don't transplant; you you seed directly in the ground. Is that correct? Yes, in nobody in Europe do the transplant now. Uh, it was done in the until the fifties. So you had this uh, was something made by women during a period of 45, uh, uh, 45, 50 days, we have uh, in Lucedio 300 women coming from Eastern Italy or Southern Italy. The name of these uh, women were Mondine. And there is a famous Italian movie of the 60s, uh, Riso Amaro, mm -hmm. uh, Bitter Rice, uh, where you see the life of these women. And it was a very, very hard job because they have to stay in the water with uh, mosquitoes, uh, and all the animals that you have in the water, and they have to, to transplant the, the rice uh, in the fields, and they had also to put out all the bad herbs 
that can provoke problems to the rice cultivation. The now you couldn't <laughs> see this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, anyone who has made a garden and and uh, knows that it's a lot easier just to disperse seeds than to transplant all those little seedlings one by one into the ground. <laughs> I can imagine that was you know, not only the, the dangers, health dangers, but the back-breaking work that it, and it required. Well, it, I commend you. that. And then after you harvest the rice, um, I've seen, you know, the pictures from your farm um, from the website about how then it's all milled now pretty much all by it's all machine milled and uh, that's a that's quite a process in itself too right yes unfortunately it's not very it's not a very fascinating process because everything <laughs> is done by machine mm-hmm. uh, when the rice arrive in the farm uh, we only put out humidity so there is a machine that produces uh, hot air and the rice turn inside this big uh, uh, big pipe and until the moment when the machine checks uh, uh, the percent of humidity that we establish we do this uh, in many of the farmers they use uh, diesel we use a gas that is more expensive but you don't have any uh, percent of the diesel on the grains. So we do a quality product uh, because we we think that uh, if you want to do a, a product for the for the consumer, you should do something like this. The law doesn't establish in Europe that you have to dry the rice in this way. It's something that we do voluntary. Hmm. Well, so you make a very fine product then, I would imagine. Um, and I want to talk about that product. I want to talk about the varieties of the rice and the final product that we get to eat, but we have to take a short break. So stay with us and we'll talk about rice, the food, when we come back. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th. And again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I am speaking with Paolo 
Okay, Paolo, you have to help me again with your name. Okay, Paolo, I'm sorry, Salvadore de Wiesenhoff. Okay, where, okay, so where is the Wiesen, Salvadore de Wiesenhoff? First of all, I want to, yeah, can you talk about the name a little bit? Salvadore di Viseno is my father's name. It uh, comes from an area of northern Italy that until the uh, uh, First World War was uh, Austria. And uh-huh. with the First World War became Italy. That's why we keep this name that is in German. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I assume that it was Austrian, you know, from yes. being in northern Italy. But um, that's, you know, that's interesting. Uh, what I, my question that I had was also about um, the varieties of rice. So over the years, I'm sure you've you've found which varieties, or if you didn't, your ancestors, which varieties grew better on the land and which um, were good producers. What are the varieties that are most popular in that region of Italy? Uh, in Italy, we cultivate more than 100 varieties of rice. Um, oh would be probably difficult to find the names of all these varieties because many of them are used to do flour. Uh, people who are uh, allergic to gluten, mm-hmm. they eat a product made with the rice flour, for example. Certainly. Yeah. But the most important variety for us are the variety that we use to do risotto. So you cannot do the risotto with all the variety because to have a good risotto, you need to use a variety that has a big percent of starch inside. Uh, The starch gives you the possibility that when you cook it, the risotto become very creamy. We say that uh, the risotto, when it's well done, is uh, all'onda, on the wave, because when it's finished, and if you move the saucepan, you see the rice moving like a wave, and this is the starch that uh, the rice has left in the saucepan. Mm-hmm. The better variety to do uh, risotto are Carnaroli, Vianone Nano, Arborio, and Baldo. These are varieties more difficult to cultivate. There are other varieties that are uh, very, very easy to cultivate. And you produce uh, uh, from this normal variety more than the double than Carnaroli, or Arborio, or Vialone Nano. Uh, so it depends what you want to do. If you want to produce a variety and that you want to sell with our with your name to the farmers, to the consumers, uh, you should use the Camaroli d'Arborio. But if you want to produce a, a variety that can be used as a flower, you can produce other varieties, for example, Selenio or other varieties that are very easy to produce and they don't suffer of many diseases. The Carnaroli is uh, like a horse that uh, uh, you only use uh, for uh, uh, for competition. Uh, mm. It must be you must be keep in a very good condition because uh, every change in the climate you lose the production, so it's more difficult to produce. And only a few farmers they grow these varieties. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, it's it's a good analogy to <laughs> keeping it like a, like a racehorse. Yes, right. Or a stud, right? Um, and um, and certainly, you know, over the years here in America, finally, you know, it was we were able. I'm talking over the years, you know, since the probably 70s, 60s or 70s, we've been able to find um, on most of our supermarket shelves different varieties for the different types of dishes. That I know from experience, as you know, as as being a, a consumer and a cook that um, 
having lived in Italy for a while, I came back and expected to be able to find arborio yeah. rice or carnaroli or violone nano. Well, forget it. You know, nothing. You could only find whatever the, the locally um, long grain rice that was produced. So it was, you know, it was, it was so exciting to finally see all of these different varieties of rice uh, hit the shelves here in America so that we could make some of those dishes. But even dishes, well, isn't selenio, isn't selenio used um, a, a lot for sushi? Yes. It's the mm -hmm. best uh, Italian variety to that you can use to do sushi. And mm. we grow a lot of selenio here in Lucedio because it, were, it came very well in our uh, with our land. And so it's a variety that we, it's more than 15 years that we grow selenio. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people like to make um, what in Italy you'd call a sformato or, you know, a, a molded yes. di rice dish. And, you know, they might, and they always get upset because they unmold it and it just, you know, falls apart. They don't realize, as you just explained, that, you know, the different varieties have more starch and they'll hold it together. And yet they still retain that, that bite, you know, the, the al dente. Yes. to the grain, which is so important. important For us, it's very important. Really? Uh, yeah. And also in Italy, it's not very, sometimes it's not so easy to find a risotto al dente. It's easier to find it in northern Italy, but if you go in center or southern Italy where pasta is much more used, um, mm -hmm. it's difficult to find a very good risotto. Right. Well, as I, at the top of the show, when I gave that example of the study that was done by Gambero Rosso, were you surprised to hear that rice was like fourth in the list? I mean, it was very, very yes. high up. There, I was but... surprised yeah. because um, uh, uh, many Italians, they didn't know that Italy is the biggest rice producer in Europe, in the European Union. When mm -hmm. we do some uh, food show, uh, and not, not only outside Italy, also in Italy, sometimes they have no idea if they live in center Italy or southern Italy, that we are the leader in, in the European Union. Uh, because for a lot, for many, many people, they use the rice as a, as a they have the idea of the rice uh, like a commodity, that uh, it's not important, the variety, you use it uh, when you are, you have some stomach problem, so you eat some the rice, uh, soup with rice inside. So not many people are very focused on risotto, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Unless you travel north, right? <laughs> yes. Then, then we know. So, would you say that in Piemonte? Well, what would you say in Piemonte? The most, what is the most popular rice dish? You said risotto. Is that is there yes, something risotto else? Risotto with risotto mushrooms. Risotto. For example, mm. risotto with mushrooms. Uh, it's uh, very very well known in in Piemonte because we have the mushrooms. Piemonte is a region with uh, mountains, uh, lake, uh, uh, hills. So you can find uh, mushrooms, you can find uh, some cheese, you can have a risotto with cheese, and risotto with truffles when it's the good season of the truffle. Mm -hmm. So um, if you want to visit Piemonte, I'm sure you, the people will find uh, a good, they will have the possibility to find a good risotto. Well, I don't know if it's lunchtime yet where you are, but <laughs> where, where we are, it's lunchtime. And boy, could I use a bowl of risotto right now. Um, you've made a lot of changes to the, um, the well, retail, not commercial so much, but the your retail availability. You're dealing, making products that are more user-friendly. Can you talk about what you've done with some of those products? Yes, we... 
we don't want to put some uh, chemical products inside the bags uh, to have a long life. And so we, we pack uh, in protected atmosphere to keep all the nutritional value. And we pack, we pack the rice uh, very often during the year. So it's more easier for the consumer to have a rice that is, uh, uh, has been worked since not many months. Uh, some people, they, they have the idea that uh, the rice should be aged. This is something that is very, it's popular now in Italy because the idea of aged uh, wine and aged wine is always more important than uh, a normal wine that you drink it immediately. But in reality, I, I think that it's better to have a fresh product because a cereal is not made uh, to be kept for many, many years. Mm. Yeah, I would, I would imagine. I mean, humidity and... and exactly. And then yeah, you have to add things. something to keep it. Otherwise, it's impossible to keep uh, a product, uh, a natural product for years. You have to do something. Mm -hmm. And I think it's... Uh, our, my opinion is to eat the rice, not immediately, because uh, when you harvest the rice in September... The rice needs at least three three months because the starch inside is not complete completely fixed. There is a chemical reason that uh, it's very complicated to explain, but there is a reason why it's better to to start to eat, to start cooking the the rice of the harvest uh, from January. Uh, it keeps more al dente, and you if you want to do a comparison or with a rice that has been already. Uh, a rice that has been uh, harvested in October and in November you cook it and you cook it with a rice that is uh, has been harvested some months before you can see the difference so never do cook immediately the rice uh, once has been harvested hmm. well I'm not near any rice patties so that will be easy for me <laughs> but <laughs> but that's but that's a really good point to to bear in mind um you do you export much of your product uh, to let's yes. say to the United States? I mean, obviously throughout Europe, but uh, we export seventy uh, percent of our production, hmm. uh, and in more than uh, twenty-five countries. And United States is one of the most important countries hmm. for us. Well, I know we have to give a big shout out to our mutual friend, Rolando Beremende, who recommended you to me to talk about rice production. And um, I know his his um, uh, consortium of, of Manicaretti yes. online it deals in your rice. And that's that's one good source for me to know about. Well, <laughs> this is it's a just such an interesting Process. I have something more interesting things probably to say to the American uh, people because uh, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, he visited Vercelli in 1787 and he bought some bags of rice and he brings with by boat the, the seeds and he planted the seeds in his estate in Virginia. And we have a copy of a letter that he wrote to a friend and he said, I have to admit that the rice from Piemont, it's much better than the variety that I was used to cultivate. Huh, so when we came to the United States, we always bring a copy of the letter because I know <laughs> that he's a very loved president. Uh, and so yeah, and he was important. also a farmer. 
Yes. Yes. In fact, as a lot of work has been done on his, uh, his farm and his home um, to restore it to its, its original and probably even better state. So that's that's interesting. Uh, I, who would have guessed that he was growing rice from rice from Piemonte? <laughs> <laughs> and in, really... in that moment, it was not legal to bring because it was such a rentable production that it was not le- legal to export uh, the grain of rice outside uh, the Piemonte and Lombardy. And so he he asked someone, some a man, to bring the rice to Marseille because he was going back to the United States from Marseille, from France. And so it was like, uh, I don't know how to say exactly in English, but it was <laughs> something against the uh, Italian law of that moment. Yeah. Because they want to protect the rice grains because uh, uh, it was the, the most rentable uh, cultivation at that moment. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, uh, well... Seeds, seeds are to be prote- protected for sure, yeah. and uh, and that's that's and it's. Uh, but I mean, no region can really grow it quite like Absolutely. like that region in Italy. Well, well, I thank you so much for sharing your time and sharing all this incredible information. And again, the name of your um, you call it your 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 factory, your farm, your the your farm business. is Principato di Lucedio. Principato di Lucedio. Lucedio, right. Lucedio means uh, light of God, because the monks, uh, the, the 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 legend said that the monks they choose to build the abbey, the abbey there where the abbey is now, because they in a in a foggy day at a certain moment a light arrives and open the fog, and so they decide uh, to to build to start the abbey in that point. Well, I I looked at the pictures of the abbey and the and it's truly beautiful i mean i'm sure a lot of work has gone into restoring it since the 1100s but it's <laughs> it is really quite beautiful and next abbey, year we will have uh, it will be the 900 years of from the foundation so we wow. will prepare a book it will be in italian and in english so i would send rolando to give you a copy of the book and so you will see the lucedio the old lucedio the new lucedio and the future of lucedio that's that's true. That's terrific. It's terrific that you are preserving all of that history that that is so important and so important for us to understand, you know, everything from rice cultivation to architecture and, and uh, you know, and land. And again, I, and I thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, my regards to the Contessa. Thank you. And yes, and it just it's a I'm going to. Uh, post a picture of the property for my readers. If you go to our website, the Heritage Radio Network website, where which is our home, um, and you go to my show page, A Taste of the Past, next week you will be able to see a picture of, of this on the website. So, thank you very much. Paolo, thank you. And, um, and thank all of my listeners for tuning in, because again, this has been A Taste of the Past. And I would like to take a moment now for my listeners to tell you all about uh, the Heritage Radio Network, or HRN, as we're known, a special business membership drive that's going on right now. We all know that small businesses keep our communities vibrant. And for $500, Heritage Radio Network will shine a light on your work and will help sustain our mission to expand the way people think about food. 
This fundraiser will support not just my show, but the amazing HRN community of all the food podcasts we produce. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, and listings on our website and more. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z, biz. Thank you, and thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.